Are you ready to make the most of your oil and gas mineral rights? Welcome to the Mineral Rights Podcast. Get the knowledge and resources you need to manage your minerals and royalties. Here is your host, Matt Sands. Hello and welcome to the Mineral Rights Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Sands, and I'm here to help you make the most of your mineral rights and royalties. And my co-host is here with me as always. Hey, Justin, how are you doing? Hey, good, good morning, Matt. So today we have an interesting topic we're going to talk about. It's as it relates to how operators work together to drill oil and gas wells. And the term that could be used is operator partnerships or operator agreements. And we'll talk about some of those specific documents and what's covered and, you know, why they're important, how they're used and how they affect oil and gas, mineral and royalty owners. So I think, Justin, maybe we start at the beginning. We've, we've talked about some of this in other episodes, but just to give a recap, do you want to talk about the oil and gas lease? Because really all of this starts when an oil and gas lease is signed because it creates the leasehold interest, which is comprised of the working interest in the well. So you want to talk about those? Yeah, absolutely. So that working interest is an ownership in the oil and gas lease, um, also known as a leasehold interest, like Matt mentioned, um, that provides the owner with the right to explore, produce um, oil and gas and other minerals. And so as the landowner, an operator or landman will approach you with this lease, and that gives that operator the right to to drill uh, an oil and gas well and then to produce it. The working interest owner bears their proportional share of the cost of drilling, um, completing and operating a well in return for their share of the oil and gas produced. There are two types of working interest, operated and non-operated. And as you would expect, the owner of the operated working interest is responsible for the actual operation and drilling of that lease. The non-operating working interest um, is consulted on decisions related to the lease, but they're not involved in actually operating that well. The oil company that drills a well on your minerals is considered to be that operated working interest owner. The company that drills the well is called the operator, and there's usually only one operator for a given lease. Other parties that own the oil and gas leases within that spacing unit for the well, but aren't the ones actually drilling the well, are called those non-operated working interest owners or non-operated co-tenants. The operator will usually enter into a JOA or a joint operating agreement with those working interest owners to agree to the rights and obligations uh, of all the working interest owners. Yeah, and that thanks for that summary. And you know, we've talked about working interests in the past in a couple different episodes. Um, episode seven, uh, working interest for mineral owners, and then mineral rights podcast one twenty six, deep dive on investing mineral rights royalties and working interests, and so. Be sure to check those out if you haven't already. Um, I also cover these topics that Justin just mentioned in a lot more detail in my upcoming online course called Minerals Management Basics. So uh, we'll, as soon as that's available, we'll post it in the show notes here so you can go ahead and take a look at it. So Justin, interesting thing with oil and gas operations and with leasing is you may think that it would be kind of a static thing. And you know, once you sign a lease with a company that it sort of has to remain with that company, but Actually, that is not the case. And many mineral and royalty owners will relate to this when perhaps they have a royalty interest in a well. That well gets sold to another operator, and then you get another division order from the new operator, and they continue on business as usual in most cases, but they just you know swapped that lease or, or sold the lease to another company. And so this is something that is important. That's important for 
uh, mineral and royalty owners to understand because it's a very common occurrence. And, you know, Justin, I think maybe we talk about first, you know, the scenario where before a well gets drilled, let's say an operator comes in and they identify an area where they want to go and explore or maybe drill, you know, one or more wells. And the way they do that is they'll use seismic data and geologists identify where they want to go and where they think they can drill a successful well. Then within that company, they'll have either an in-house landman or they might outsource it to a contract landman. And when I say landman, that could be a man or a woman. That's just in that profession. It's the person that contacts the landowners to negotiate an oil and gas lease so that as Justin mentioned, it would provide the right for that company to go then and drill a well. And so it's up to that landman to obtain that oil and gas lease in that area so that they can do that. And usually it's if it's a totally new area and they're the first company or first group to lease a bunch of minerals in an area, they'll have an advantage because there won't be very much competition. So that doesn't usually last very long. You know, word travels fast in the oil and gas industry you know, landmen are talking to each other. They are looking at the county um, courthouse and seeing that new leases are getting filed in an area perhaps that had not had any leasing in the past. And so that sort of will perk everyone's ears up and say, well, I wonder what that company is doing over there. Let's go pay attention. Let's look at this in a little more detail. And some of the more adventurous landmen or speculators will go in there and say, well, if, if this company is leasing a bunch of stuff, it must be good. So I'm going to go in and lease too, because they're probably going to want to own most of the leases in that area. So um, you'll start to get this land rush effect where, where landmen will start to go in that area and they'll start to lease it up. And usually there has to be some data behind that. Obviously, they're not going to spend a lot of time and money doing that just on the um, wild guess that there could be oil and gas. They'll do a little more research. They'll do their own due diligence and say, well, yeah, this actually might be a good prospect. And so let's go let's go in there and get involved as well. And so what you end up happening is the first group may have a good contiguous area that they've been able to lease in, in terms of owning the majority of the leases in that area. But then after the word gets out or like later in the, the life of a play or a basin, you'll get companies that will come in. You'll have multiple companies coming in and, and leasing. And so you'll get a patchwork of oil and gas leases covering that basin or play. And you know, Justin, as you could imagine, they would want to try to get contiguous acreage to develop it, make it easier for them to kind of do it in a manufacturing type mode and have good structure to where they can place the drilling spacing units where they want. But, you know, often that isn't the case. So they may have to trade. Do you want to talk about what happens when an operator, you know, might end up having to trade acreage? Absolutely. And so like Matt mentioned, that continuous acreage is important for them really to be effective in drilling and for it to make sense for them. A lot of times they'll look to trade. And for example, if an operator has 90% of the leases in a spacing unit, number one, an operator, the other operator, operator B has 10% of the leases in that spacing and spacing unit is the acreage that's pulled together for one or more of those wells. In the adjacent spacing unit, the percentages may be reversed. So operator B may have 90 and operator A may have 10%. One way they try to increase their NRI in the spacing unit where they plan to operate the wells is to swap that acreage. So in this example, operator A may swap their um, minority interest in operator B's unit in exchange for operator B's minority interest in their unit. 
So at the end of the swap, operator A would own 100% of the leases under the unit they plan to drill, and operator B owns 100% of the leases under their planned unit. It's not usually that simple, Matt. Sometimes they'll pitch in money to pay for a difference in the value between the swapped acreage. But the important thing to understand is that in the example is that they are trying to consolidate the acreage where they own the majority of the leases. Lease trades may be covered by a lease exchange agreement as well as lease assignments, um, which are recorded in the uh, county courthouses where the leases are located. And for anyone that's gone into those public records, there's a ton of them. Yeah, there are a ton of them and they're really long documents. There'll be lease assignment documents that are maybe 100 pages long and it'll have a big list of all of the leases covered by that agreement. So it'll say, you know, Joe Smith in Township 1 North 9 West Section 23, Northeast Quarter, da, da, da. And then it'll have the other owners in that quarter section and then down the road. So it'll be a really long document that you know will cover all of the acreage that those either was sold in exchange for you know money or um, exchange for interest in other oil and gas leases or other areas. So there's really no rules. You know, it's sort of a wild west when it comes to trading and buying and selling leases. It's something that happens all the time, and it's just you know, hey, you you have something over there that I want. I have something that you want. Let's do that horse trading to get what we both want, and and so that's kind of how it's done. And then. You know, like I mentioned just now, the other common situation is where you'll have an operator or a company that will sell a lease. And so in the situation, well hasn't been drilled yet. And we mentioned those speculators are out there kind of looking um, at trying to pick up the pieces and the crumbs, so to speak. And so a lot of times that's what will happen and they'll come in and get you know lease here or there. And what they ultimately intend to do is to flip it to the operator that has the majority of the leases. And in doing so, they'll take a profit, right? They'll sell it for some monetary um, benefit, as well as also reserving and overriding royalty interests in those lease tracks. And I know, Justin, you've run into this as well with some of your great uncle's interests, huh? Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, it it seems to be fairly common, but this was a, a case where he had the working interest lease, sold it off to another company, and then reserved that overriding royalty interest, just like you mentioned. Yeah, so oil and gas leases, you know, the important thing to remember here is that oil and gas leases can be bought or sold or traded at any time. It's very common practice. And, you know, from a mineral owner perspective, you got to keep in mind that even if you sign an oil and gas lease with one company, you say, oh, I'm very picky. I'm going to sign the lease with this company. Well, just know that they may end up selling the lease to another company. So they may end up not being the operator like you would want. You know, again, you, have a lease with the landman who may be a contract landman that's working on behalf of an oil and gas company. It may not be totally clear when you sign that lease who ultimately um, is going to own it, but you can ask and sometimes they'll tell you, oh yeah, we're, we're leasing on behalf of Oxy or whatever company. And sometimes companies either because they don't have uh, a lot of landman um, in-house you know, on salary all the time because it's sort of a Thing that ebbs and flows in terms of the times when they need a lot of manpower on the ground to go and lease a bunch of acreage. And so they'll outsource that to a contractor. And so that's why sometimes it'll be a third-party company that will be presenting you with an offer, but then ultimately it'll be assigned to the operator in, in exchange for whatever agreement the operator makes with the landman in terms of you know what, what kind of override they get to keep or whatever. So a lot of what a lot of goes on behind the scenes that you're not aware of and it really not 
that important always to to know about it, but just know that it does happen. Something worth mentioning about here is is the importance of those lease terms, and this is something we've talked about many many times before, but certainly important to have lease terms that are favorable to you, no matter who the operator is. That's an excellent point. Yeah, especially since you know those verbal agreements you have. If it's a, your friend that is the operator, and uh, you know maybe he ultimately has to make the business decision to sell your lease. Well, whatever unwritten agreement that you had with him won't stand up, you know, after it's sold, that, that new leaseholder is not going to uh, usually, you know, abide by that. So it's really important to get all those terms documented in the lease or in a, an addendum, something like that, to where it's on in writing and it's it's signed and agreed to. And so that's important to have. So ultimately, most cases, I would say that your lease could exchange hands multiple times um, before and even after a well gets drilled. And a lot of times you don't have a say who it's sold to. Now, I suppose if you had a large enough number of acres, you know, if you had the majority of the acreage in, an, in a basin or plate where you're looking at, you know, seven, eight, nine figure lease bonus type amount to where you're really then dictating the terms of, you know, okay, this is how you're going to come in and operate because I own the surface and the minerals and I, I'm going to have to approve, you know, if you sell this. You know, maybe there's some situation like that where you could have a say, but I would say in 99% of mineral owners' cases, you will not have a say as to who buys the lease. And again, if it's in writing, it's not that important. The most important thing is you have it documented in the lease so that you can make sure that that is uh, what you get paid and those are the terms that are followed if a well does get drilled. So Justin, do you want to talk a little bit about the situation where the reasons why a company may not want other non-operated working interest owners to own leases? Sure. And so, you know, something here, Matt, that people don't realize is the operator doesn't need to own 100% of those leases in order to uh, permit and drill those wells. And this is something, Matt, that actually impacted me. I ended up being an unleased co-tenant. And so essentially, um, they decided to go ahead and proceed with the drilling and, and paying royalty owners. But my interest um, was not something they were really too concerned with because they owned that majority. So, yeah. So, the reason they might want to have a majority interest is just it gives them uh, better economics, you know, in terms of success of funding and drilling the completions of the, so they'd want to try to own the majority of the, the leases within a spacing unit for most cases. But then, you know, and that's because in most cases there are statutory pooling laws in places in, in many states that have uh, give the operator the ability to recoup the cost of carrying the non-consenting working interest owners' interests when they go and pay for drilling a well. But that said. You know, there are situations where you have like what is called a tight hole situation or a confidential situation where maybe uh, operators drilling a wildcat well or a totally exploratory well in a new area. And if they have positive results, they would want to keep those results confidential to give them a competitive advantage against their other companies in the area. And so there are provisions for some states where they can get confidential well status, which gives them the ability to not have to report production publicly for a period of time, you know, sometimes a year or, or so, as well as not provide any of that information about how they completed the well or, you know, the, tool, the techniques that were used, because that, again, would be considered proprietary. Now that will run out um, after a certain period of time, but you know, for a period, they have a competitive advantage. And so this is where they maybe want to own 100% of the leasehold under that exploration well, 
because then they don't have to share production data or any information with their non-operated working interest partners. So, you know, in terms of, you know, giving them the billing, hey, here's the bill, but then oh, by the way, here's how much was produced and here's your share. Um, because if those numbers are really good, then companies will say, wow, we need to go in there and start to lease up the the surrounding acreage and try to get in on this. And so, you know, obviously there can be other agreements that will dictate what gets shared and what doesn't get shared in that situation. But most of the time they would want to just own own the interest outright for a, a total exploration well where it's a complete tight hole situation and so that they don't have to worry about someone else finding out about it before they're ready to to let the cat out of the bag. And then that brings us to the next section, which talks about that document that does outline the terms between the operated working interest and then the non-operated working interest partners is called the joint operating agreement. Justin, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So next to that oil and gas lease, this is uh, certainly one of the most important documents that governs the exploration and production. And as mentioned, this is an agreement between the parties who own the oil and gas leases within the same tracks or adjacent tracks that make up the drilling spacing unit where one or more of the wells will get drilled. In the example we talked about, there are times where operators each own a large percentage of the leases overlapping each other and both may want to maintain operatorship within that area instead of selling or trading that acreage like we talked about. So an alternative arrangement is to document who will be the operator in a given area and then each party's rights and duties in terms of operating and the operated and non-operated interest. Matt, this is very common in the Appalachian Basin and then as well as the Permian Basin, it seems that most wells that have a JOA that governs them and there's multiple parties who can be involved. If you own a non-operated working interest in a well, the JOA or the Joint Operating Agreement is an important document. It's the Bible in terms of your rights and responsibilities with respect to owning an interest in that area covered by the agreement, which is also called the contract area. And so the JOAs, Matt, they might cover things um, like whose responsibility it is for actually operating. Like you mentioned, it lays out all the owners and percentages. I mean, what are some of the other things, Matt? So yeah, it'll determine, you know, the billing, the accounting rights, you know, responsibilities, what kind of audit capabilities the non-operated working interest partners have. They'll have, again, like Justin mentioned, we're going to operate in section one, you'll operate in section two, we'll operate in section three, et cetera. So it'll have the the contract area that's covered and they'll say, okay, this is, you know, in the case where maybe they're going to share operation across a, a common area, they'll say, okay, this is, this is who's going to build the infrastructure in this area. This is who's going to build the infrastructure in this other area. Here's going to be who operates these wells. This is going to be who operates these other wells. And so that way they have it in, in writing and it's all outlined as to, to who does what. Other provisions might include you know, title, you know, liability concerns, those areas of mutual interest or contract areas, who owns what, who is responsible for what, confidentiality and trade secret provisions. So a thing that you get with the JOA is if you participate in a well, a lot of times you'll get data. So they'll get geologic data, they'll get some additional data other than just the production that was reported to the State Oil and Gas Commission. So this is also important um, because that sometimes will dictate whether a company uh, may want to participate in a well, even if they don't think it's like a, a great like economic benefit. There could be some strategic benefit to getting a sense of the geology in that area where the non-operated working interest partner, maybe they have other adjacent leases and they can glean some information by 
participating in that well and getting that additional information. Because a lot of times if they elect to go non-consent or not participate in the drilling of the well and, and not pay their share, then those confidentiality agreements will will kick in and say, yeah, you don't get you don't get access to any of the data associated with that well because you didn't participate in it. So those are some of the other things that will be in those those JOAs that will dictate, you know, who does what. An interesting one that I I was not really aware of, but you certainly see it is a farm out agreement. And this is an, an agreement where the oil and gas lease can be assigned to that third party for development in exchange for this assigned acreage. The third party called the farmee pays the owner of the leases, the farmor, money up front for the interest and usually also commits to spending money within a certain amount of time to drill one or more of those wells. And Matt, this is an interesting one. I'm sure it's more common than you would think, but it's not something I've heard about a whole lot. Yeah. And these are the things that maybe aren't that obvious necessarily if you're looking at it from the outside in because you know you don't have a um, necessarily an agreement that's recorded with the county. Uh, you might just see all of a sudden, another operator is now going to drill some wells and, and permit some wells. You know, I guess if you looked at behind the scenes and looked at who owned the leases behind that, you might say, well, why, why are they drilling it? This other company owns the leases. Well, you know, there, there must be a farm out agreement. And, and usually when that happens there, you know, if you do have an assignment, they'll have, uh, you know, there could be an assignment document that's recorded. But a lot of times it would be in this farm out agreement because it would be a potentially a temporary assignment. So, for example, you might have the third party that comes in to pay the owner of the leases to gain an interest in that area in exchange for drilling and completing those wells. And so at some point, though, maybe the wells will become profitable or they'll reach payout. And so that original farmer would say, now we want to um, regain a working interest in those wells. So there's a lot of different variations to these types of agreements, but it's just important to, I think, understand there's a lot of real creative ways. And I've seen this, and I'm sure there are other industries have similar um, types of situations, but it, it seems like it's even more so within the oil and gas industry in terms of maybe you own a bunch of leases, you're a small company, you can't afford to go and drill the wells required to hold those leases. And you don't want to just let those leases expire and become worthless, but then you also don't have the capital to drill the wells. So that's a conundrum. And in some cases, you'd say, well, you're just stuck. You know, you can't do anything about it. But the way that you can solve that problem is through a farm out agreement. You could farm it out to a third party. Maybe it's a larger company that has deep pockets that can pay for those wells. Or maybe it's a company that got left out of the whole leasing boom. And they said, wow, we really like that area. We'd like to get our foot in the and start to earn an interest in some of these these units. We don't have any of the leases, so we don't have any you know leverage from that standpoint, but we have funding. And so we'd like to go in and, and they might approach a company that has a bunch of leases, but doesn't have the funding and they can work together. It's like a partnership to where the company without the funding gets some money so they can develop other acreage that they own. In exchange, the company that buys an interest in those wells, goes and drills well, and then will get an interest in those units. And so it's kind of a, a win-win situation. Now, the interest that is is purchased is all documented in that farm out agreement. And then also, it'll di- dictate the time period for when they have to go and do something, for when they have to go drill you know, those particular wells that earn them the interest in those units. And then Justin, like kind of 
like what you mentioned, I know your great uncle was uh, in a smaller operator and, and this may be the situation that, that you, that he faced to where he had the, the leases, he farmed it out to a big company to drill the wells. I got, you know, some money for that. And then also maybe got to keep an overriding royalty interest in those leases. And then maybe he had the option to convert it back into a working interest at some point. And if that was the case, that's called a back in after payout agreement. And so basically again, after that farm far more recovers the cost of drilling and completing the wells covered by that farm out agreement, then there might be an option in there for the company to say, we'd like to convert our override back to a working interest. And so all that would be be documented in there. But again, you know, th- this is a useful tool for the smaller company that maybe just doesn't have the capital to go in and, and drill all the wells to hold the leases that they have. Absolutely. And it's, you know, Matt, it's another tool in the deck to um, be strategic with the properties that they own and try to monetize those um, so that they can be successful businesses no matter the size. Yeah. And that's uh, certainly, there's a lot of creativity and ingenuity in the oil and gas uh, industry. And this is one of the areas around the different partnership agreements and different ways that operators and non-operated working interest partners work together. And, you know, again, there's a lot of strategy and tactics that go into this. And it's kind of fun when you think about all of that. But just to recap, we were talking today, really the, the key event that starts the the snowball rolling down the hill, so to speak, is the signing of an oil and gas lease because that creates the leasehold interest. And from that, we like we mentioned, you have the operated and non-operated working interest owners. And then together, they'll have different strategies and tactics they'll employ to try to maximize the value of their leases. And so that could include trading and and swapping leases, buying or selling leases. You have that, you know, before a well gets drilled to consolidate within an area or maybe after a well gets drilled and maybe you want to sell your interest in an area and get out of that basin or play. And so you'll see companies sell their interest in, you know, in the Permian Basin or sell their interest in the Appalachia Basin. Well, this is what's happening. They're selling their leases and uh, all the production, all the operations, and a lot of the equipment and all that stuff that goes with it. And so that's, you know, part of you know, really the whole thing that gets this started is when you sign that oil and gas lease. And I think really the big takeaway here for mineral and royalty owners is it's really important to negotiate the right terms for your oil and gas leases so that if your lease gets sold down the road, you have a solid lease that is uh, in place so that paid what you deserve at the end of the day. Absolutely, Matt. Yep. That lease is critically important. And no matter who the operator is, you, you that lease gives you the rights that you need to protect yourself. Absolutely. Well, and on that note, that wraps up this episode. Uh, thanks again for listening. If you could do us a huge favor, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. It'll really help us out. Thanks again for listening. Thanks, Justin. Thanks, Pam. Thanks so much for listening to the Mineral Rights Podcast with your host, Matt Sands. Don't forget to subscribe and share at mineralrightspodcast.com. The Mineral Rights Podcast should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy.